So part five of our series of the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's called this called The Great High Priest. Uh, no uh, great um, brain power there to try and find a title. That is the name of this section of the book. Uh, certainly not given by the, the original uh, writers, obviously, but given in uh, the uh, later on in the NIV. I think probably others as well may have the same subtitles. But... Uh, we're looking today at the great high priest and today we look at this specific unique role as the great high priest found in Jesus compared to the high priests of the Old Testament. It will reveal to us that Jesus' role as one of the great, as a true great, the only true great high priest was to bring an end to the annual practices of atonement by human high priests. The principle I think we might find in studying this section is that complete eternal atonement cannot be done by imperfect human high priests, as we will learn in the text. As we look at these passages passages, and remember where we have been, uh, we can see the particular route that the author has taken is one from the heavenly comparison. So we first started with a description of who Jesus is in the kingdom. And then we had comparisons. We had uh, Moses, we had the, the angels. This is kind of a just a little chart, I suppose, of where we've been. So a description of God, then description of Jesus compared to the angels, then compared to Moses, then compared to the high priests. And now we kind of get both. We're kind of getting high priests and people together. Uh, and that will continue most certainly with people and how Jesus relates to people and what he has done uh, in 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 his work in the gospel and so in this message uh, we see a message of the great uh, high priest who is both the god who is on high because that's the point here uh, and also a god who is not lofty who is not uncontactable or disconnected uh, but a, a god who has endured the very weaknesses that we suffer still remaining lord and savior but able to sympathize and empathize and so what we'll learn is that we have a god who's not only able to sympathize with our weakness but also empathize with our temptation that is what we'll be looking at today this is what makes jesus the high priest of all high priests we'll see that he's not weak like human high priests but can sympathize that means to understand you know what sympathize means, I like to look it up as well, just to what sympathy and empathy uh, to sympathize is essentially to understand that Jesus understands um, through his humanity what we go through. And at the same time, he can empathize, that is to connect with our temptation that we have, because he himself was tempted, yet through his godliness remained sinless and never succumb to it. Within that, we will understand, sorry, we understand that for the reason we must hold firmly to the faith in Jesus Christ is because he is the one who is the object of our faith. He is the one that we must keep in view at all times. So mainly our concentration actually, whilst it is uh, between uh, Hebrews 4, 14 and 5, 10 actually, is probably the first few verses of our reading today is our main focus uh, but we'll go through and I'll connect that all together and, and show you how it all works. So let's look at our first uh, few verses here. 
Uh, it says, uh, Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, I'll talk about that, with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, to understand this statement, we need to understand two things. Firstly, Jesus' ascension, that is to go up to, uh, to the heavens as the Son of God and his high priesthood. We need to understand that. What does that mean? And secondly, that his ascension, his going up to heaven, uh, does not create a loftiness in regards to God's ability to know exactly what we experience and we go through. As in, because he is God, it doesn't mean he cannot know what we go through. And this is what these verses will teach us today. Many, I would argue, of the small g gods uh, you will find in the Bible are obsessed. I'm trying to say this in the right way because God is for his own glory, by the way. But this is different. The small g gods, the other gods, are all about uh, nothing about the people that worship them. They, they, they don't care about the people. They just, they just want selfishly to be their God, as it were. And actually, our God is much more giving and loving than any of these small g gods. When we looked at Hebrews chapter 2, we found the first mention of Jesus being the high priest. Uh, this was uh, Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. We are now being told what this role of the high priest is actually all about. Jesus has passed through the heavens and is now seated at the right hand of God. That's where we are today. Jesus, the great high priest, is not only the divine son of God, not only God himself, but is also fully human. So what is the role of a, of a high priest? We need to put this into context. In the Mosaic priesthood, uh, the Levitical high priest served as a, served as a religious head uh, of his people and mediator between God and man. The high priest was the only one permitted to enter the inner part of the temple, which we've done previously. We looked at what the temple looks like, uh, where God dwelt to make atonement for his people. Uh, we see this in, in Exodus 26.33, what this place looks like. Uh, hang the curtain from uh, the clasp and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most high place. The most important duty of the high priest was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month of every year. Only he was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God, having made a sacrifice for himself and for the people, as we will read later on. He then brought the blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled it on the mercy seat of what they would consider what was God's throne, uh, certainly within the temple of the time. Leviticus uh, 16 verses 14 to 15 says, here's to take some of the bull's blood 
with his finger, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times uh, before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. He did this to make atonement for himself. The priest would, is also making atonement for himself. There was a leveller in this, and the priest was not even called a high priest. In the sense of being called a high priest, he was not beyond sin. And so he is also offering up his own sins. He's also doing this for himself, again, as we'll see later. And that would have been uh, to give God the sins of all the sins committed in that year. So every year, once a year, they would do this atonement and they would give up, they would sacrifice the, the animals, the lamb, and, and they would keep repeating this every single year. And we see this again, uh, Exodus 30, verse 10, once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on his horns. The annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. It is a, this particular service that we're seeing here that is compared to the ministry of Jesus as we're reading in Hebrews as our high priest in our reading as well as other places in Hebrews later on by the way when you read Hebrews you'll see the repeated mentions of things so we're not going to go into Melchizedek because actually he's mentioned about three or four other times in Hebrews and at some point we'll pick up Melchizedek uh, there's no reason necessary to go into that straight away I want to focus on certain other things um, just so uh, you, you come with the question afterwards, what's Mel the order of Melchizedek about? Actually, it's tiny. It's such a small incident, a small time that Melchizedek was, was there uh, that it, we could probably cover it in about 30 seconds. But anyway, we're not going to go there for the time. We're just going to look at what we're looking at today. But this is where our verses kind of sit today, now what we're looking at. Uh, every high, Hebrews 5, verse 1 to 6, uh, as we move forward, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's the, the high priest, by the way, they're talking about here. So given the same description of what we see in the Old Testament, this is why we, he, he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Again, we saw that in the Old Testament. Consistency. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. We saw that verse as well. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself uh, the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While the Levitical uh, priests were temporary, Jesus serves as this permanent an eternal high priest. In both the end of Hebrews 4 and the beginning of Hebrews 5, we find references to our weakness and Jesus' ability to understand our weakness. But furthermore, he is able to empathise with our temptation. And this is a very important aspect of who God is that we need to understand. We have a God that is both high and lifted up, but who came for those who are sick in sin, whilst also understanding our weakness against it. 
it's wrapped up in a very brief mention, but it's so powerful that God is able to understand our weakness, that the high God, the one true God, is so well connected with us that he can understand every possible pain that we go through. And certainly with sin that we have been through before we became Christian, most certainly. Now what I'm going to do, I'm going to work through this a little bit backwards. We've gone through the verses up to uh, verse 6 in Hebrews 5. I'm just going to sort of mention some of these and go backwards so we can understand the order by which we can understand weaknesses and, and, and this sense of empathy and sympathy. How does Jesus do that? How can he be both sympathetic to our weakness and have empathy in our experience of temptation? So as I said, sympathy is something we do to understand or to be understanding. We just understand. We don't connect with someone's situation. We just understand. We hear them, but it, it, we, that's about as much sympathy as we can offer. Now, sympathy is okay because actually uh, there are sympathies probably more used when we don't have an experience of what someone's going through. So we offer sympathy because we don't, we don't, we've never been in that place. Empathy, however, however, is something we do to connect with an experience. And it, it will, will well be because we have ourselves been through a similar experience. And so empathy becomes a, a connection that we make with people when we not only understand, but take on what they have been through because we may have been through something similar. So with that, you kind of start to understand what Jesus is doing here. We, we do it on a very, in comparison to Jesus, a very basic level. Jesus is doing this at the sin pain level, at the darkness of the soul level, when he says, I sympathize with you. He understands what's the root of our pain. So let, let's work back here. So Hebrews 5 verse 2 says he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, as I said, this is about the high priest, the human high priests, whilst mediators, mediators between man and God were acknowledged to be the subject to the same weaknesses as every other human being. So what is being established is the limitation of human high priests in their ability to redeem people of sin. For a time, high priests were uh, allowed by God a temporary time and an appointed time each year for sins to be atoned for, to be paid for. God allowed a period in the Old Testament that flawed men, high priests, would be able to approach the Holy of Holies, and offer up the sin offering, as it were, the bulls and the lambs and the things that God, God commanded them to give as a sacrifice. The problem is, of course, is that that would have kept happening. That every year, they would have had to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And ultimately, these atonements, these payments, would not, eat, would not be enough to bring us, all of us, even them, into eternity with God. They merely atone for the time. 
And of course, that doesn't mean that all those people before haven't gone to heaven. It just means that there's an ultimate destination here, that actually there was a, a sense that God allowed those people to enter, I believe, enter into the kingdom. Those people the Old Testament have not been pushed aside because they didn't know Jesus. But there had to be a permanent payment for the rest of us to be allowed into that. So, so this temporary payment wouldn't have been enough for us. Certainly as Gentiles, it was not enough. Ultimately, the problem in our weakness is revealed in Romans very simply. Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's just a very simple fact. We fall short of the glory of God. Then we go back a bit further in our reading. Understand the God on high who has the ability to understand the lowest of us all. Hebrews 4 verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. I think this is one of those verses that's quoted often among Christians. We like this idea, and it's true, we like this idea that Jesus is able to empathise, sympathise with our position. He can, he knows exactly what we are going through. And this, this verse is probably especially in a difficult times that we we are challenged with as Christians that we this verse gives us encouragement but I want to show you something and put something to you that may help to put some meat on this verse rather than just reading it in isolation we're going to just understand what it, what is, what's being said here uh, and, and look at its intention the first issue and it's not wrong it's not incorrect it's just a way of explaining it is that the NIV which is what we use here we're told that Jesus is able to empathise uh, and say it's, it's, it's not wrong, it's a way they're trying to explain it. The original Greek actually uses sympathise as a word. So you'll see um, in, I think I've got it here on the ESV, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Uh, that's more closely aligned with the original uh, Greek that we look at. I think what the uh, NIV authors have tried to do uh, is try to get across two points in one. So put empathise em, instead in order to try and bring the two together. So I'm going to separate them. We're going to use this ESV translation. And I'm going to explain actually Jesus here in this verse, I believe, both sympathises and empathises. Uh, and, and I'll show you what that means if you, you're seeing the verse right now. But I'll, I'll kind of try and get across what that means and why it's important as well. Jesus sympathises with our weakness. That is, he understands, he understands completely our weaknesses and our weakness. And that's in sin. That's what we're talking about, weakness here. Not talking about your, uh, your, your inability to not diet or something like that, or to not take chocolate or something like that. We're talking about weakness as in sinful weakness, as in the sin that makes us weak, a sin that tries to attack us even as Christians as well. Yet what we need to be sure of is that Jesus, as God himself, is not weak and never was weak. But I'm going to explain, there's a verse that comes up and tells us that he, he is. I'm going to explain that too, why it's not a contradiction. I think this is really helpful. 
So what I believe the author is showing in Hebrews is by speaking of sympathy, is that whilst Jesus was fully human, he was able to look upon the weakness of mankind and understand it. How? He is God. He is able to look on the weakness of mankind and see exactly the weakness, not just from the outside, totally depraved in our soul. He's able to see the weakness that root is rooted in our sinfulness and in our soul. 2 Corinthians 13 to 14, uh, sorry, 13 verse 4, sorry. For to be sure he has crucified him weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Well, hold on a minute, we, didn't we say that Jesus isn't weak? And yet now we're saying in Corinthians that he's been crucified in weakness. What is going on? Just as our verses say in Corinthians, yes, he was crucified in weakness, that's in flesh, in human, as fully human, but it immediately follows he lives by the God's power, by the power of God. Jesus was crucified in weakness of his fully human person, but did not succumb to it as God. You need to be clear, and, I, and I, I'll, uh, there's a good quote here actually. God did not die on the cross. You need to be really careful. A lot of nonsense going around that says God died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross, definitely. Jesus died on the cross as a human, fully human, but God did not die. And let me explain this, because there's a really good quote here to explain how it works. God died because Jesus was God in human form. And Jesus' soul spirit separated from his body. That's in John 19, verse 30. However, if by death we mean a cessation of existence, as in to not exist anymore, then no, God did not die. This is really helpful. This is how we understand how, God, how Jesus is fully man and fully God at the same time. God did not cease to exist when Jesus died on the cross. It's a really important point. For God to die, in quotes, in that sense would mean that he ceased to exist. And neither the Father nor the Son nor the Holy Spirit will ever cease to exist. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, left the body he temporarily inhabited on earth, but his divine nature did not die, nor could it die. Hopefully this is starting to help a little bit of understanding how the two work together, how Jesus is both fully human and fully God. That, that's a really good quote uh, that I found there. I think it's on gotquestions.org, I think it is, or .com or something. Um, but it, it's a, a really helpful way to describe human death and then there's godly ceasing of existence god did not cease to exist let's be clear about that so the weakness is an important aspect for christians to understand jesus died in the weak body as we are weak but the difference is that christ died so that he could conquer death as god and so make a way for all of us paul makes it a little bit clearer in romans where what he was saying to the Corinthians. So we had the verse in Corinthians. We see in Romans uh, 6, verse 8, much clearer. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. 
It's, it's almost it's almost a, a smaller version of the verses in Corinthians of the verse in Corinthians rather. If we die with him, then we'll live with him. So he didn't die, but he did die. I'm glad that's clear. Now we've seen the aspect of sympathy. Uh, Jesus has, does understand our weakness. He totally, completely understands our weakness. And so I want to look at this aspect of empathy uh, as we go back to our verse here, the ESV version, uh, to understand where in this part or in this verse is Jesus able to empathize? Well, the word itself, empathy, is not used uh, when we look at this verse. There are many words that we use as Christians that are not in the Bible, but they describe a, a principle, an idea of what we understand the Bible or parts of the Bible to be. The second part of this verse begins with the word but. I think in the NIV it says, uh, yes, sorry, is it, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The word but is always used to counter or to say there's that, but there is this. So there's one thing and then there's another thing, but a different thing, but also the same thing because it's related to the previous thing. You have to get into like English and like understand. I, I, I got a terrible grade in English. I got like an F or something in GCSE. It was terrible uh, in English uh, literature. Although I was amazed I even got that, to be honest. Um, but when the author <coughs> describes Jesus as one who has been tempted as we are, it is the same but different tempting. When the author speaks of Jesus being tempted, this is a purely external temptation. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus was not internally tempted. And the reason for that is because Jesus remained sinless. There is no uh, sin within Jesus as God. So the temptation he, he speaks of here when he says, I empathise, it's one in every respect who's been tempted as we are, that, that as we are section of those verses says that he empathises. Because he has been tempted from outside of him by the devil. That's at the worst case. The, the other cases might be even simpler things, like the, the pharaohs, like, the, um, like the, the people who would come and try to trip him up, try to legally trip him up. When they asked him questions, the Pharisees, sorry, would come, and they would ask him questions and try and, try and make him say the wrong thing and yet Jesus was always right all the time so it can range from right from the devil trying to take the kingdom of God probably I would say when I'm looking at this I think right down to the smallest thing trying to trip Jesus up with some legal question about how we pay taxes or should we pay taxes and things like that but we need to be clear that Jesus God cannot be tempted not once does Jesus, Jesus struggle with internal temptation, for he cannot be. James 1 verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Uh, interestingly, uh, what we find is that many people use uh, verses like these and then compare them with Old Testament verses uh, and then look at how the, uh, God's people tempted God. There's, there's quite a few verses in, in the Exodus when 
it's noted that Moses says, don't tempt your God. It's not the same thing, by the way. Uh, there's a very specific way this has been used in James. James uh, says, tempt him with evil. He's tempted by evil. In our Old Testament time and what people did, and we do actually today, is to test. Tempted means to test. You have to, you have to add evil on the end for it to be testing in evil. Does that make sense? All we're doing when we sin, say all we're doing, but when we sin and we don't do and we don't, we're not obedient to God, we're testing God. Does that make sense? We're testing his grace. We're testing who he says he is, what he will do, and what is to come. We're, we're testing him, tempting him. That is a big difference, just a kind of little side note. So, so God himself is not tempted internally. Jesus is not tempted internally but humans us we suffer from internal temptation next verse james 1 14 but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and entice you see the big difference we struggle with the same temptation internally how can jesus empathize because he saw he experienced it externally we experience the same temptation internally no one is good, not one, says God. What the Hebrew author says here is that Jesus' experience of being tempted externally means he can both know what it means to be tempted, but because it's external, he is able to overcome and not succumb to temptation itself because he's without sin and because he's fully God. This is what these verses in Hebrews is telling us too. There is no way that our God can be tempted or to be internally driven by some unnatural evil desire. He can't be. He's purely good, perfect in every way. So in this regard, Jesus can empathize, can connect with the same temptation as we are tempted with. At no point does the external temptation to the fully human Jesus break into or come from the unbreakable Jesus as God. There's no way. It always came from outside to attack him, but never made its way in. So let's look at our last few verses here uh, to fully understand this unbreakable, unrelenting, sinless Jesus, the designated high priest, uh, as we look at these last few verses together. Uh, Hebrews 5, 7-10. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Uh, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is a really important point to close on. What these verses speak about is likely the Garden of Gethsemane, when we read this. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went away to pray to the Father. Uh, and this is what he said. Uh, Luke 22, verse 42 says, Father, if you're willing... Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, we need to be clear. This is not a cry of disobedience. 
It's used quite often to argue that Jesus was in fact struggling with this. And I will tell you how he is actually struggling. It's not, this is used quite often to show that Jesus was not God. But I'll tell you how he was under the weight of what was about to come. And when you understand it, I think you'll get an idea that it's not about Jesus being disobedient, but Jesus knows fully what he is about to do and the reasons that he has to do it. And I would dare anyone to, if you're ever in that position, to have not cried out. And so we see in our verses, Hebrews 5 verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life and earth, he offered up prayers and petitions of fervent cries and tears to an one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That's a really important last point of that verse. Reverent submission. It was in obedience to the Father. In obedience to God. The cry about the cup is to emphasise to us the unbearable weight that no one else was able to carry. The weight of this cup represents the immeasurable weight of sorrow that we will never fully understand. We, this is why I talk about getting to grips with sin. When we look at Jesus and this unbearable weight, we have a, a I would say in comparison, a fleeting experience with sin only because of grace. What Jesus is experiencing in this moment is humanity's entire weight of sorrow and sin in one go. Who can do that? What man could stand in that space? No one but God himself. So fully human Jesus unsurprisingly cries out to his father. It would represent torture and abandonment and the sin offering made in him. Jesus asked if there is a way to not drink the cup, then do so. But he says, and immediately follows, above all else, and because of the union of God the Father and God the Son, he is, as the verse in Hebrew says in verse 8, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He knew he would have to go through this. But then Jesus comes back a second time. It's interesting actually that we only get um, the, we get the two moments of prayer uh, in Matthew, we get one in Luke, uh, but they join together nicely to show us actually almost a full account of what happened in between and during those prayer times. He came back a second time, and that was after he had gone to the disciples, told to stop sleeping, wake up, be on guard. But how is he able to do that? How is he able to come back a second time after asking the Father, take this away from me? Because in Luke we're told that after the first prayer, this is what happens. Luke 22, 43 to 44, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That was after the first prayer. 
An angel tended him, encouraged him, gave him the strength he needed to continue. Luke tells us that after Jesus' first prayer, an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. God the Father responded to the, responded to the Son by strengthening him to drink the cup. Then Jesus prays a second time. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. I, d- I didn't really know, actually, entirely what the weight of this verse meant, what, it, what, what Jesus was saying, until you really dig into it and find out. Here we find is that what Jesus is asking the Father, he's saying, first of all, he's accepted that he has to drink the cup. He's, this, this second prayer, it built into it is an acceptance that he has to drink the cup. Now what he says is he's saying to the Father, but when I do drink that cup, give me success in doing it. May I drink it well, is effectively the translation here. That's what we're looking at. When I drink the cup, now I've accepted, I need to drink it. Now when I drink it, may it be done and be done well to the glory of God. That is what he is saying. Because Jesus was reverent in his submission, he was saved from death. We saw that. That's why we can say that God didn't cease to exist. As we discovered, Jesus died as a human, but that death did not destroy him as God. And so for us, that is what verse 14, <coughs> excuse me, 14 and 16 of Hebrews 4 of our reading tells us to do also. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If we hold firmly to the faith and come in reverence to God, what we are doing is allowing God to make us us successful in the mission he has set ahead of us. Just like Jesus, when Jesus says to him, when I do it, Lord, I want to do it well. When we pray and we we allow God into our heart, when we say to him, Lord, do what you need to do, because I want to do this well. I want to finish the race well. And when I say he makes us successful, I don't mean he gives you loads of money, okay? We're not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm telling you that what this means is that in God's mission, we will be successful if we believe, trust, focus, approach God's throne of grace with confidence. It is by faith in the high priest that we will be part of the successful mission that God has laid out in his word. To hold firmly to the faith means we should also heed the warning Jesus gave the disciples when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is in between the two prayers. And and when you read it, you think, how it connects with what we're looking at is just amazing. Matthew 26, 
verse 41. This is where we'll finish. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. And guess what? What he has been telling us. The flesh is weak. Watch and pray. How many more times do we need to be told? There are many times in the Bible, watch and pray for the devil prowls like a lion waiting to devour, says the word. We need to be watching and praying. We need to approach the throne in confidence. Center our attention, as Hebrews said, has been saying in these last few weeks, on the throne of God. Center on him, focus on his ability to complete the mission. To bring about the plan of Jesus Christ, of the Lord and Saviour, the Godhead, Holy Spirit, Son of God, Father. Trust in him to bring about the end that needs to be brought about so that people who trust and believe in Jesus will go with him, have a new life, no more pain and no more tears. But in the meantime, watch and pray. Let's pray now and then we'll uh, worship together uh, and then bring our service to an end. Lord, we... Lord, I just want to first of all just ask forgiveness for the times that actually been a bit lazy in terms of just thinking well uh, maybe looking at the obvious things Lord that try and get to me trying to appeal to my flesh but Lord there are so many hidden things so many dark things Lord that uh, just what comes to mind right now Lord just been reading in the news uh, just an example of humanity uh, the the pravity of us that just in welling here, we had an attempted abduction of, of a child. And people are asking, what, why? why? What's wrong with people, they're saying? What's wrong? Lord, I don't really, it's not patronizing here, but Lord, you say it in your word. We are depraved. We are weak. There are extents we can go to that will please the weakness in our flesh. There are places we can go to in our heart that are incredibly dark. People asking why, well, why do we people do that? Because we're depraved. We're in need of a God who, who's written in the word, who's got this Bible right here and says, this is you. This is me. I've come to save you. I've come to give you grace and salvation and welcome you into the kingdom. And we go, oh, I'm not sure. There's got to be, a, be something wrong with this deal. Pray, Lord, that first of all, we do not slip into this naivety that we are all capable of such darkness. We are all capable of such depravity Lord, only then, as you say your word, as only then, will we know that we're in need of a saviour. Only then will we know that sin is rampant in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we will share the gospel so people may 
have the sin as it has been shown to us in our own heart. But not to leave them there, but to bring them out of the chains of sin. To reveal to them, as you have done to us, just how much we need God. How much we need you, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Who has made it incredibly easy. I pray that we'll stop kidding ourselves into thinking we're good people. And actually, Lord, submit, lay down. I'm not just talking about non-crime, I'm talking about all of us, Lord, all of us, me. Bend the knee and say, Lord, there's nothing good in me. And yet, your son, you sent to die on a cross, to die for my sin. I did not deserve and when I die I'm going to go and join him <laughs> it doesn't make sense a reckless sinful man like me can be redeemed in Jesus Christ when we acknowledge that we are all sinful Guilt is removed, the price has been paid, and I'm set free in Jesus Christ. And yes, the rest of this Christian life in this place will be a day-to-day -day struggle to be more like you every day. And Lord, I pray in your Holy Spirit that you keep strengthening us that you do send your angels, as it were, actually through your Holy Spirit, to tend to us, to build us up again, to encourage us in our despair, in our darkness. Thank you that you, Lord, can reach the darkest depths, that no one is out of reach of your hand. Pray, Lord, remind us, Lord, to keep watchful and to pray to be alert, sober, the temptation around us, Lord. Pray, Lord, we as a church remain true to your calling, true to your mission, that we preach Jesus Christ forever and ever as far as this place can be, will be here. Pray that that will continue, Lord. Trust in the word, trust in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It is all we need. We give these things to you, Lord, and say, Lord, do a work in our heart. Get us ready for the day we'll meet you. We ask these things in your precious name.